0: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. We did two weeks in the studio and basically the vibe was uh, all the producers would, we aligned up like eight or 10 different uh, keyboards and, bass guitar a mic for vocals a mic for a piano like everything was live so it was like 20 tracks of just stuff and all the producers could just kind of jump on whatever they wanted to and they would just create and vibe off off different jams and um then solange will come in and say okay i like this what you're doing let's loop that let's you know take this and then a lot of times um i think don't you wait from the album mm-hmm. a Seat at the Table uh, was created this way where I think we had gotten to that groove where they were just playing and she this was just like we had been in the studio for a few hours and she walked in and just picked up the mic and basically just freestyled that freestyled that
1: yeah yeah check it out I'm your host Corey Cambridge uh yeah Everybody tuning in, you invited, you invited. No matter what mood you in, get excited, get excited. Everybody love the music. Let me tell you how they do it. Whether writer or an agent, let me tell you how they made it. You are now talking to a silent giant. Wanna walk in their shoes, silent giants. Wanna study their moves, silent giants. Wanna know what they do, silent giants. Silent giants, y'all. <laughs> Welcome to the Silent Giants podcast, a podcast highlighting the superstars behind your favorite superstars in creative industries. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge. To keep up with the latest on the show, be sure to follow us on Instagram at, at @silentgiantspodcast. podcast. To keep up with my life, music and more, be sure to follow me as well at @corey_cambridge. Corey Cambridge. Today's episode features a very special guest, Makaela Blue Spruce, a.k.a. Blue the Engineer, the Grammy award winning engineer behind Solange Knowles' album, A Seat at the Table. In this episode, Blue talks about his career, the makings of a seat at the table, and how it felt to win his first Grammy Award. So without further ado, let me introduce you guys to Grammy Award winning engineer, my friend, the silent giant, the Blue Spurs. All right, Blue, welcome to the show, my man. What's good, man? Happy to be here, bro. Dude, happy to see you again. Happy to reunite.
0: <laughs> yes, sir. It's man. been a long
1: time. So happy to have you on the show, man. Awesome, Super man. Super blessed to
0: have you. Yeah, for sure. I'm happy to be here, bro. First, where are you from, brother? I grew up in Seattle. Um, I moved here when I was 18 to go to NYU, okay. and so that's what brought me to New York. And I've been here basically ever since. And what was your experience like growing up in Seattle? Seattle was great. I mean, when I was growing up, I mean, Seattle is it, it has its own vibe. It's like very West Coast to a certain degree, but uh, removed from the Cali scene because it's so far north. And so it definitely has its own like feel you know it's pretty rainy so it's a little depressing that you know the whole Kurt Cobain suicide capital narrative is 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 somewhat accurate um but it definitely has its own scene it always had its own music scene and and has had a lot of contributions to to the music the musical world over the years you know Quincy Jones from Seattle um, Jimi Hendrix Jimi Hendrix, my man, Jake One, who's a great producer, did stuff for, you know, uh, G-Unit, a lot of people. Like, we have our, we have our, mild, and then, of course, my man, Lamore who, who you know. So it makes a lot. So it makes a lot, yeah, yo. Pop, people think my posse's on Broadway is about Broadway in New York, but it's definitely not. It's about Broadway in Seattle. Really? Yeah, Broadway is the, the strip where, for years and years, it was all, you know, Capitol Hills, where all the clubs and little venues, party spots are at.
1: Wow, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, man. My posse on Broadway is about Seattle. You know what I think about when I think of
1: Seattle? What's that? I think about Free Willy.
0: <laughs> Wait, why? And
1: there's a scene <laughs> in Free Willy, real talk. There's a scene in Free Willy where like Jesse's going through on his bike uh-huh. and like they're tossing fish in the fish Ye- market. Yeah. That's in Seattle.
0: Yeah, definitely. Was Free Willy set in Seattle? Yeah. The, the, Dog, the, remember, <laughs> remember, like, the, remember the old head in Free Willy?
1: Yeah. Like the old kind of like Native American guy? Yes. He had on Seattle
0: Supersonics hat. Wow, that's real. So that's real. I'm gonna have to rewatch Free Willy because I had no idea that it was yeah, in Seattle. My
1: earliest memories of Seattle. Never been there, yeah. but I
0: think of Free Willy. You know what's funny is that that's probably because I lived in Seattle, so it was just like, yeah, that's normal. They throw fish at every market, but right. That's only in Seattle. Uh, how did you first like get into music? My birth mom, she uh, was really into music. She always played soul and you know Motown, Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder, like all growing up um i still remember when when gangsta's paradise came out by coolio it was like my favorite song instantly when as soon as it came out i was i loved that song and i and, and i played it for my mom i, I might have been 10 or 12 years old when it came out and i'm like mom you gotta listen to this new song like it's so awesome and i play it for it she's like this is this is stevie wonder like what are you doing i played this for you when you were when i was pregnant with you wow so it's like something you know full, full m- circle Super full circle So something must have Drawn me to that song And just that type of style In general Like that I loved Michael Jackson Growing up I had the bad tape in, On deck In my little play school Boombox Everywhere I went 87 Yep 87 Eighty seven. was when he was born A- No I, did yeah. it come out in 87? It was
1: born It, it came out in 87 87? But it was like Rocking in 88 Yeah Maybe I, think I thought it, it was 86 87 no, nah, no. Nah. I think it came
0: out in '87 because I think the world tour was in '88. Oh, okay. You might be right. My dates get a little fuzzy. I was, on, I was, I'm, I wasn't I'm, that old in that time. I'm also like four. a
1: humongous Michael Jackson nerd. <laughs> that's that's
0: good. Like, we on the same page? Have you seen Moonwalker? Of course. Start okay. with Joe Pesci. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Come on, dog. Good. I mean, there's people. There's people who swear they like Michael Jackson. They say, "Oh, you've seen Moonwalker," and they look at you crazy.
1: Nah, no. Nah, I had the video game dog.
0: Oh, I used to play that in the arcade. Yeah, that shit was real. There was a corner store by my house that had the arcade of Moonwalker back in the day, and I used to go in there just to play that.
1: Yeah, I, <laughs> I remember going to Blockbuster.
0: Mm-hmm. Actually, it
1: wasn't even a Blockbuster. It was like a movie time. It was like a hood. <laughs> the hood Blockbuster.
0: Blockbuster, okay.
1: Like, like no carpet on the floor Gotcha. type, type spot. Gotcha. But they had um, uh, Moonwalker in there. Yo. So I was like, yo, we got to cop this joint. Mike, yeah. was, Mike was kicking ass, dog. Look,
0: I had the bootleg tape of Moonwalker f- that I had taped off of TV, like when they showed it on TV. Yeah. So like a black tape with a, with a masking tape label with sharpie on it that said moonwalker and i watched that shit a thousand times dog
1: yo much love to joe pesci
0: yo (laughs) with this scene the super dramatic scene with the gun in the end he was scary dog yeah nah, it was it definitely that was a definitely a traumatic part of that movie my favorite part was when they did the uh the uh claymation video of smooth smooth criminal and michael jackson dance battled the bunny version of himself in the
1: desert yes fire I gotta rewatch that. Yo, Yo. We, okay, we gotta add that to the there list. There you go. That's part of the movie. We gotta, we gotta add that to the list.
0: I swore that we got
1: like four movies now. Yeah, no.
0: I, I told myself after MJ passed away that like every year on his birthday I will watch Moonwalker, but I have yet to do it. So maybe soon we could do that.
1: We gotta find it. Like where's it gonna be at though? Who? Like
0: I, I, I have is it maybe it on, on Amazon. I feel like I have it on a hard drive. I found it on like a torrent site years ago, and I was mad hyped, so I just downloaded it and kept it on the stash. But I have to find it. Damn torrent. Yeah, like, like, years, that I was think like, it might, it might have been like Limewire era, like. Like, that was like
1: back in like the downloading porn days. There you go. Up, <laughs> there you go. Like Moonwalker and like
0: Big Asses Six.
1: <laughs> Booty <laughs> like, Talk I, Number I found, Four. Yeah, I found it. <laughs>
0: yes, yeah, sir. So, so um, they write in the same folder. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, shit, honey, I found it. Uh, yes. Just ignore all the rest of the stuff in that <laughs> folder.
1: <laughs> and so, uh, so blue, uh, did you always know? Like, what was your? Did you always know that you wanted to be involved in music? And how did you uh, first get introduced to it? As far as you being involved, just like making music.
0: Um, when I was really young, I played the drums. Um, and that was my first introduction into like being a musician, I would say. Um, it didn't last too long. I mean, I, I played for a few years and I really enjoyed it. But once I got to like, like, m- late middle school, early high school, when if you were a drummer, you had to like be in the jazz band and learn how to read music and all of this bit more advanced stuff. I just was like, no, nah, this is not. It's not for me. I just like playing. My my original drum teacher was very like funk and rock. Like he just taught me drum patterns, So I liked that part, but I didn't like reading music and stuff like that. Okay. Um. So after that, I became a DJ. So all throughout high school, I would DJ, do little like mixtapes in the crib, you know, real mixtapes where I had the turntables hooked up to a tape player and just recorded. Wow. You know, so you had to do it right once. Once. You know, and if you messed up, you had to weigh whether it was worth redoing again because you're like, I might mess up again. And it's not worth it. So you had to spend like an hour. And I never really did anything with the mixtapes. It was more just for me. Um, so it would be like, you know, this is like the Raucous Records, Most deaf, Talib Kweli okay. era. So I would blend all of their records at Outkast or, you know, whatever was my favorite music at the time. And just kind of just to, to practice and stuff like that. And I did a few shows, local shows. That period was just me, you know, really diving into the, the Seattle hip-hop scene, seeing like Most deaf, The Roots, all of those guys, and then the local openers in Seattle all throughout high school. That was like my life.
1: Did you ever have a desire to be on
0: stage talent as far as like vocally or? No, never. I've never written a rap in my life. I've never, I've never written a song, a singing song. I never wanted to be a singer. And I, I think at that time period, I mean, I don't know if it was just because we were young or, or what, but it, it felt like you had to do something. So everybody was either like, you were either a rapper or you were a DJ or you were a break dancer or you were like an artist. Like you had to kind of, if you were into, into hip hop, you had to like have a role and so that's why I was a DJ because I felt like that was being behind the scenes but still involved in the music was was my felt like my place. And so I think that's what really transitioned me into into engineering because it's I don't want to say it's the same role but it, it's 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 similar. There's a lot of similarities.
1: So when did the transition happen from from DJ to engineer?
0: Um, I was in NYU. I went to NYU. Uh, my major was music technology. Um, and that was very engineering based but i didn't really know kind of what engineering was at that time like it was before the era of everybody having pro tools in their house or it was before garage band and all that so it was like if you wanted to make songs you had to go to a studio okay um i started college i mean i'm not that old i started college in 2002 but it still it was before the time where you could sit here and record a podcast with a tiny little recorder like it right. doesn't it it didn't, it didn't work like that. So I didn't really know much about engineering and I started working with an artist. I thought I wanted to be a producer. So I I thought I wanted to make beats and I got reason and I was like trying to make beats and my first beat sucked, but that's kind of everybody who makes beats. It was, yeah. So it wasn't just because like, you know, everybody's when they start is not good. So that's not what discouraged me. It's just kind of like when I would come home and try to sit down to make beats, I just didn't have the kind of I didn't have the drive to sit there and make beats all day. Uh, But I started working with an artist who was a... He was from Seattle, and he had moved out to New York, actually. And he was a producer and rapper. And so he made his own beats, and he rapped. And, you know, kind of, like, naturally just fell into that engineering role. He needed somebody to record him and kind of clean up his music and get it ready for the world. So, like, through that, and then the fact that that my program at NYU was very... Based, was mostly based on uh on engineering it kind of just fell in line and i i found a, a really big passion for for this side of it you know the because techni- my mind is very technical and also but it's still a lot of room to be creative
1: at what point at, at nyu did it kind of hit you like you know what i'm going to go into this engineering thing was like your freshman year sophomore year
0: well my freshman year i wasn't I actually like finagle my way into the engineering program because in order to audition for the engineering program, you had to like play an instrument. And I didn't, I wasn't good enough to play the, I didn't feel like I was good enough at playing the drums to like audition with the drums. So I just started NYU as like a regular, you know, undecided student. And then I just kind of like went to the office and asked them and, you know, just tried to figure out my way in there. So I didn't get into the engineering program until my sophomore year. And I would say pretty much that year, nobody really socially saw me after that. I have friends, so I used to hang out with really heavy freshman year that, like, they, they'll tell you, like, yo, after sophomore year, I didn't see him ever Wow, because I was just in the studio. I would stay in the, in the NYU studios. They used to let my boy worked there. He worked as, like, you know, he would rent the gear out to people, and so they would let him book overnight time. So they would basically they lock the building at, like, 7 p.m., and they would unlock it at 7 in the morning. Okay, So they would let us book time overnight, but we had to stay there all night. We couldn't leave because the door was locked. So we would just book, and he would bring his boys to record, and we would just record music and mix all night. We had an SSL board, so we're like kids in a candy store.
1: What was it like, uh, the transition coming from Seattle uh, to New York, as far as like yeah,
0: getting used to the, the speed of the city? Was it a big learning curve for you? I think I always wanted to be here. I mean, like growing up, I listened to you know Nas, Jay. Like, I always kind of was, was really enthralled by the energy of New York. And so being in a village, to me, was like... A dream come true. You know, I'm in NYU. I'm in West Forth. Like, that's, there's record stores. There's cool stuff going on. Like, Seattle's a big city, but it's, you know, you drive everywhere. So, in New York, you can come and you walk around. Like, you see things all, you know. So, I think right away, I I, I took to it pretty pretty easily. It wasn't, it definitely was an adjustment, but I feel like I was really just ready to be here. So, I think it was just, it, 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 it happened pretty naturally.
1: Uh, what was your, um <clears throat> excuse me. What was your introduction into getting into the music industry Um, or like your first
0: kind of like industry job? Well, I mean, I have a studio right around the corner, you know, as you know, right on 39th Street. um, Lounge Studios is my home. I've been there basically since I graduated college. I graduated college in 2006 and started working there like two months after that. That was like my first... I want to say my first job, I had gotten paid as an engineer before that, but it was always like I would go to like some hood studio in the Bronx and like work at nighttime and mix their records because I was good enough to kind of like get a little money, charge people like $20 an hour or something like that, but didn't have a regular place to work. Okay. So I would say starting at Lounge was my first real like home base and place to work out of. And at that time, we really didn't have a lot of industry clients. We had a few. Um... But it built up over the years, just because of the quality of the studio, and then of course, uh, I was trying to do my thing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: so also, uh, what was the first artist that you recorded where you were like, "Wow, like, like this is <laughs> this is happening right now"?
0: Um, the first person I had to say was Slim from One Twelve, and <laughs> it sounds it sounds random because even at the time, he was like, I would say like past his. Heyday. Yeah. Um, But he was a real cool dude. It was like a guy who I had worked with, got him for a feature. So he recorded the hook. And that was my first like session where I remember being like, oh, this is a famous person that's in the studio that's like right here. Somebody that I saw in videos when I was young, right here standing in the studio. And I'm recording him, and I'm like, the guy. I remember he had, during the studio session, that's how you knew it was like an industry thing. It was different than a normal session. Because he had like a fitting for some photo shoot. And so like we only have really one space in the studio. There's a control room and there's a live room but there's big windows so it's like you can't close the window. Like, you, you can see. So he put like a big sheet so he could change his clothes in the studio because he didn't want to like go into the bathroom right. to do it. So it was just, that was like, but to me it felt like a very industry moment. You, like,
1: you, hey, dog, this dude gets a sheet. Yeah, like, well just like, he's having a
0: fitting, like he's doing, <laughs> somebody's giving him a bunch of clothes to try and then he picks them and then he, and of course in my mind he was getting them for free. I don't know if he was or not, but it's just like this, like very industry. It felt very industry. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I did. I can't even lie. That, that was my first time being in that type of environment working. But I mean, I'm skipping my whole. I, I interned at Baseline as well. So.
1: Life is full of
0: what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash Well That was like my real... In- Jay-Z's? In- yeah. Well, it was, it was right after Jay-Z sold it to Just Blaze. Um, okay. And so I was there for about two or three months. I was like the unofficial intern runner for Guru. I only liked to be there when Guru was there. I was like a kind of a snobby intern. I can't even lie. I was like, I don't want to be here with anybody. I just want to s- study under Guru because he's the man. Um, and so I I got to see you know Meth Bleak record and a couple of things like that. So that was but that was me as an intern just sitting there watching.
1: Was there anything that you learned from from watching Guru?
0: Um, it was tough, man. It was like he was he had just got the A and R position at Def Jam, and he would come to the studio seven eight o'clock, and then pretty much just work, and then fall asleep on the studio couch. So I didn't really get to talk to him much. I just got to watch him. And it wasn't watching him like right up on his side. It was like watching him from the back studio couch. Yeah. Because you know, you got to be a fly on the wall. When you're in the studio and you're an intern, you have to disappear. Right, especially in the creative process. Like, Man, you can't get in the way. Right. Because anything you do wrong, somebody's like, who the fuck is this guy? Why is he in my session? Get him the fuck out of here. Right. Um, So I try not to make waves. You know, I just, really it was just more of his approach to like watching him work and watching how he put things together sonically because i it, you know he was working on an ssl board so from far away i can't see like what eq he's you know i could see okay he's brightening the vocals he's adding this delay reverb but i couldn't see any of the settings so it's not really like direct techniques i could take but it's just more of an overall like sonic of oh, this is how he puts together a song
1: if you have a mentor as an engineer or someone that kind of took you under their wing and or you kind of modeled yourself kind of a little bit after the way they moved or, like, some of their techniques?
0: I think, I mean, I would say the, the only person that I would consider a mentor is my my boy, who I don't, I'm, actually, we lost touch. I, I would love to get back in touch with him. My, my boy, his name was uh, Ted. We went to college together, and he taught me how to use Pro Tools. So he was, like, the first person to say, okay, yo, this is how you record in Pro Tools. This is how you do this. This is how you do that. But uh, after college, we kind of, you know, we kind of lost touch. He actually, he had a, uh, he recorded 50 Cent I Get Money. That was his, like, well, I don't know. Hopefully he has, maybe he's done something since, but that was his big, like, big moment of doing a big record. It was dope, man. That was probably my only, really, mentor. But I didn't have, like, a lot of engineers, they sit under a big engineer for years and years and don't really get their kind of own, they don't get their own shine until years later. And I didn't really have that period. I kind of, like, I was 22, and I started being the head engineer at a studio. And so, like, I kind of skipped that phase, and then just I built up the studio as I built myself up, right? Kind of.
1: It's also interesting too. I feel like that the engineers that I know is because rappers shout them out. Like, I I didn't know that who Guru was until Jay Z shouted Guru out. Yeah. Or Bob Power. Yeah. uh, True. True. You know, because Q Tip, you know, Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So like, I feel like rappers really like shout out. Nah, that's that's real talk. Cause you don't like, the Rolling Stones aren't shouting out their engineer right well all of the and when you look at old sessions like especially old rock sessions the engineer always just looks like I mean really even in rap stuff it's just now getting to where engineers are kind of like stylish guys, but like the engineer, when you see a picture of the studio, the engineer is always like the lamest guy in the Dude, picture.
1: Moppy, <laughs> he got the he got mat- the
0: ponytail, Dude. Or like the, <laughs> the faded t shirt, bro. Like it's all you always can. You can look at any picture, and be like, that's yeah, the engineer. That's the engineer, right? Right away, engineer. And so that's. I mean, I try to change that. Hopefully, I try to add my little flair and You're aesthetic good. to good, my. <laughs> good.
1: And so I, I want to get into uh, into Solange's album. Okay, yeah. Uh, so uh, how did you first uh, meet Solange? How did that op- Opportunity, like, come about. I know you've worked with her for, for years now. Yeah, it's um, been a while. Just, I,
0: I had to think about it the other day, like, eight eight years, I think. It, we started working together in 2000. No, nine years. We started working together in 2008. So, the first thing I ever did with her she came to lounge to my studio um, during an EMI session. She was at the time signed to EMI as a writer um, you know she wrote a she wrote a, a few records for for her sister right, Beyonce, yeah. um, and you know got a got a publishing deal, but I don't think she ever really wanted to be a songwriter for other people. The songs that she wrote for her sister, I think, were just songs she wanted to write and it happened that they landed on her sister's album. I don't think it was this thing of like I'm gonna be a songwriter <laughs> right. So when she came in for her EMI session, we had a we did a lot of songwriting sessions for EMI at the time, and um, she came in and was like, "Yeah, they want me to write songs, but I think I'm gonna do this cover version of a song that I really like." So it was a song called "Stillness Is the Move" by the Dirty Projectors. Uh, shout out to my man Dave Longstreth. It was him and uh, two two female singers were the group, and they were an indie kind of band from Brooklyn, very like left left field. You know, weird kind of vibes, but dope music. Um, and she did a R&B version of their basically biggest song at the time. Um, and she did it over the, depending on how old you are, it's either the Bag Lady beat by Erica Badu or the Explosive beat by Dr. Dre. Same, okay, you same saying same B. Yeah. <laughs> so depending on what area you grew up in, you're you know, Explosive. So I can't remember, but either way, we flipped it, we changed the key, and she sung that song in a very, like, lush R&B harmonies, like, super dope, if you ever look it up. It's dope. Um, and so that was the first thing we ever did together. She recorded it with me, and then we mixed it, and it ended up getting on the 2009 Time Magazine Songs of the Year. So the reason I know... The reason I say... It did because the Time Magazine list listed the original with the cover as the as the number whatever seven song of the year. Okay, so it wasn't just the original. So I know that Solange's version helped. It you know helped help blow it up past that. Um, so that was the first thing we ever did together. And then uh, soon after that, she moved to New York and uh, started working on the True EP, which uh, which we did together in my studio and Lounge Studios uh and the rest is kind of history,
1: and so uh, how does the process work uh with the c uh with this table was it a um is it like a collection of songs you guys kind of had already like working that became an album or was it like, you know what let me call it blue we're gonna do an album like, what was the process it was like making it, it was
0: kind of like that um she has another recording engineer that who lives in Houston, my man Nino uh, who she worked with uh before me who she worked with during her whole like Hadley Street and soul angel like Um, he was working for, was it Music World, Uh, Matthew Knowles' company? Yeah. Um, So she was very close with him. So it was basically me and, when she started A Seat at the Table, it was, uh, what, True came out in 2012. 2012. Seat at the Table, she started working right in 2013. She basically started right away. And um, her whole thing for that album was she wanted to go places and create. Um so the first session was actually I wasn't there it was Nino um which if you there's a great behind the scenes video of her creating uh Don't Touch My Hair. So it was uh her Nino Sanfa a few other producers and 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 musicians and stuff in the, in the room and they were writing Don't Touch My Hair and that was in the summer of 2013. And then uh I started she she uh booked me to go down to New Orleans in like October of that year and we did 2 weeks in this huge church uh, in New Orleans, because by that time she had moved to New Orleans, um, and we booked, she booked this studio, which was in a church, a church that was destroyed in Katrina, um, and then somebody bought it and turned it into a studio. So the live room of the studio was the church main hall. Wow. Huge, beautiful church organ, and then, you know, some of the best acoustics in the world are in churches. Um, better than, you know, better a lot of times better than performance halls, churches have great acoustics, historically, even like going back in, in history. Um, and so the acoustics were great So basically On that trip It was me As an engineer We had Dave Longstreth, Who I mentioned earlier From Dirty Projectors Sampha was there Who at this time Now everybody knows him But right. back then He was You know Just just starting out Doing his thing But super dope You know That guy His voice Like everything Unbelievable come, Everything that Comes out of his mouth I say Like it's like his voice Is just amazing He can sing anything And it sounds great um, So it was him Sampha My man Quest Who's a British Uh British producer and artist, um, and then Adam Bainbridge, who, who goes by kindness. Okay. Um, a producer named Benga, and who else was there? It was, I think that was everybody. Please don't let me forget anybody. Um, but yeah, we did two weeks in this studio, and basically, the vibe was uh, all the producers would, we, I lined up like eight or 10 different uh, keyboards, and bass, guitar, a mic for vocals, a mic for a piano, like everything was live. So it was like 20 tracks of just stuff and all the producers could just kind of jump on whatever they wanted to and they would just create and vibe off off different jams. And um, then Solange would come in and say, okay, I like this, what you're doing. Let's loop that. Let's, you know, take this. And then a lot of times um, I think, don't you wait. From the album, mm-hmm. From a Seat at the Table, uh was created this way where I think we had gotten to that groove where they were just playing, and she, this was just like, we had been in the studio for a few hours, and she walked in and just picked up the mic and basically just freestyled that. Like, basically just sang that whole melody, sang pretty much every part of that song. I don't think there was anything that's in the song that wasn't initially recorded just in a, in a mumble take. A lot of times she'll mumble a lot of the words, but it's, the main idea of the song. I mean, you're right. you're a writer, right. so you already know. Of course, you you know you mumble until then you get the words. I, and so, so the entire process of making uh, "Seat at the Table" was two years, uh, more than that. It started in 2013, so that until it came out was three three years and it like three years and change. And then um, if you include, so I wasn't there for this part either. Um, "Cranes in the Sky" was written in 2009. So about eight years ago, at this time, maybe a seven and change from when the album came out. And uh, what's funny about that record is she did it, uh, Rafael Sadiq did the main elements, the the most, the the majority of the production, I would say, he did the the drums, the bass, basically what it was, it was a track with drums, bass, and the strings that you hear in the song, the synth strings. And she had that kind of on tuck the whole time we were working on what came to be a seat at the table, but didn't ever quite know if she was going to use it. Which is funny because it became you know the, the most, you know, the most uh, celebrated song on the album and a lot of people's favorites.
1: I tried to put one
0: in the air. I tried to dance it away. I tried to change it with
1: my hair.
0: Um, and I, I always loved it. Whenever she would play it, I'd be like, Yo, I hope she puts this on the album. It's so dope. Yeah. Um, and it basically, again, it was one of those where, I, and I even pulled up the files recently to, to see what the first mumble track was. And it's basically the whole song. There's an additional part that she ended up editing out. Um, but it's basically the whole song. She wrote it in 2009 and just kind of had it in her back pocket. Wow. Um, so I would say the majority of everything happened in those three years. But then Seated at the Table predates basically everything else on that album. And so uh, you won a Grammy. Yeah. Oh, cranes in the sky. I'm sorry. Cranes in the sky predates everything. I think I said that wrong. Anyway, yes. Go ahead. But you won a Grammy. Yes, sir. And so, where were you uh,
1: <laughs> when you won your first Grammy?
0: Um, so I was in the studio, man. Um, it's it. I was working on uh, an album. Uh, you were
1: super- in. You were in the studio. Yeah. When you won your
0: first Grammy. Yeah, man. It's weird. When you when you so when the song, you know, you work on a song that gets nominated for a Grammy, there's no like you think, you know, you think that this like care package gets dropped down from the sky, like and then you get tickets and all that. But like, no, you have to actually have connections in the Grammy Association to get tickets and like now I'm a voting member of the Grammys after that. Uh oh, uh oh. Shout out. So Subtle flex. I might I might be, you know, I might be able to vote <laughs> somebody in there. So you know, well, be nice like, well
1: you can vote for your own shit. Yeah, there you go.
0: There, there you go. go. I definitely will be doing that <laughs> if it ends up. We don't get to the so the voting members don't choose what's on the ballots, but we can definitely choose, you know, we can definitely vote. So I'm in there. Wait, so you can vote for yourself. Yeah, definitely. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. So you just have to and this is to anybody who does work on music, it's Relatively easy to become a voting member of the Grammys. You have to have, I think it's six, no, 12 credited songs like on Discogs or AllMusic. Okay. So any like commercial releases that then get uh, picked up by Discogs or All Music, if you've, and when I said 12, it doesn't mean 12 albums, it's 12 songs. Okay. So, you know, Sol- Solange's album by itself fulfills that requirement and anything else I've done over the years. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, if you have music that's out there, you know, definitely sign up, man. We gotta have we gotta have accurate representation by yep. by us creatives in, in the in the voting field.
1: There we go. There we go. I agree.
0: Um, but yeah, so I was in the studio when I found out. Um, and it's funny because I knew that the, the there's only certain categories that get announced on TV. It's really only like six or eight categories that get announced. We think that there's like a bunch of them, but it's really the whole Grammys is performances, and there's like eight. Right. Eight winners. Right. So the rest of the whatever like 70 categories that there are get announced in a pre-ceremony. So I knew that they were gonna announce it before the ceremony. And I knew I had to work. So I told my my wife, I was like, Don't, you know, don't tell me. Don't tell me ahead of time because I want to wait for the because you know, during the ceremony, they'll like flash like Ear- earlier tonight, this person won and this person won. So I wanted to have that moment of like seeing it. Um and so I told her, Don't tell me, but then like I kind of like... Oh, yeah, you got, you got too many goons in these streets, man. Well, it got it got close to that time, and she called me, and she, you know, she she let me know that, that, that uh, we had won, and she was like, you know, just, I didn't want some, you know, because right after that, my phone just blew up. She was like, I know people are going to call you and tell you, and I want to be at least the one to tell you that you won. So it was dope. It was a super, you know, humbling and awesome moment, man. We went, after that, I stopped working about an hour after that, went home, and, you know, we chilled and you know had some drinks and watched the ceremony and stuff like that. So it was a really great moment. I wasn't able to be there this year. I uh, wasn't. I didn't jump on getting tickets early enough. But hopefully next year I'll get in there.
1: What did what'd your, what'd your mom say?
0: Oh, she was man. She was super proud of me. Uh, and just it's kind of an amazing thing. Like when you start in this music thing, you don't ever think. I mean, you want to get that big. You want to get to a point where like, oh, yo, I I worked on this song. You know that 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 won a Grammy. Like. You want to get that big, but you don't ever think that it's really possible. And so when it happens, it's like, yo, I really, I really did it. Like, that's a huge milestone to me. Anybody who, you know, we can hate on the Grammys all we want, but anybody as a musician still wants one. Man. Grammy
1: award winning <laughs> Blue, there the engineer. Dude, you thank go. you so much for coming on the show. Thank I love you, man. man.
0: Best of luck. Oh, man, it's a pleasure, bro. It's great to, great to see you doing the thing. And this is a, a, a dope, uh, dope series, man. I'm happy to be a part of it. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much to Blue the Engineer for stopping by the show today. Special thanks to the Silent Giants behind this episode of the Silent Giants podcast. Mixing engineer Jay Goodman, photographer Kayla Kahlberg, and theme music produced by Richard Valerie. I'm your host, Corey Cambridge, signing off till next time.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well...